My brothers and sisters, today our scripture readings tie in so beautifully with our opening prayer, what we call the Collect. The Collect is that, that first prayer that you hear the pray, priest pray, and if you listen to the word itself, Collect, it has to do with collecting, with gathering together, with unifying the voice and the heart and the mind of the faithful who are gathered together for, for Holy Mass. And unity is what we hear about right in that prayer itself. So if you can remember the very first line, it talks about God who unites the minds of the faithful into a single purpose. Who unites the minds of the faithful for a single purpose. My brothers and sisters, God has desired from the beginning of humanity that the human race would be unified would be one on this earth. And we kind of take it for granted that, you know, everybody's got different opinions and disagrees with everybody and someone's not talking to someone. Everybody knows someone who's not talking to someone. You know? And we just kind of take that for granted. But it really needs to be brought home to us how that's so contrary to God's fundamental will for humanity. God has not ever wanted it to be the case that human beings would ever be divided from each other. Period. And so what he's done in the church is he's given the human race an opportunity as it were to start over, to start fresh, to have a second chance. And the church is called to be what the Second Vatican Council says or refers to as the sign and the sacraments of the unity of the human race in the world. It's a very important and exalted vocation that all of us have as members of the church. And God has given us the office of the papacy as a means to that end, to help cultivate and facilitate that unity so that we can be that sign of a unified humanity. So, so important. It's so near and dear to God's heart, that we would not be divided and at odds with each other. That's the case for humanity in general. How much more so is that the case for us as members of his one holy Catholic Church? We see the papacy in our scripture texts today. We've got this beautiful passage from Isaiah in the Old Testament, and it ties together with the passage about Peter and Jesus very, very well. So if we go back in time a little bit, you go, you go back to the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. You've got King David who lived about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And uh, the passage in question that we hear about is taking place maybe around the year, say, 700 B.C. or so. And the king, that's the king of Israel at that time, or the king, I should say, really, of Judah and Jerusalem, is a son of David. So there's a son of David who's sitting on the throne. Okay? Now, at that time, as it is really the case all over the place in all, all periods and times, kings would often have to be away from their kingdom. They might be on uh, a battle campaign, they might be on a diplomatic mission, whatever is the case, there's going to find many, there's going to be many occasions where the king's got to be away from his kingdom. Okay? So now, if he wants his kingdom to be uh, at peace and unified and running smoothly, what's he going to do? What do you think he's going to do? What's the most wise thing for him to do as he departs? 
Okay, I'll give you some alternatives that you can imagine are probably not the right answer. Okay, so say the king has got five million subjects. He's going to go away, and he says to each of the five million subjects, Okay, each one of you, I want all of you individually to just basically do whatever seems good to you. All right? Whatever feels right, just go for it. Have at it. Okay? Would that be too smart for the king to do as he leaves his kingdom behind? Right? It's doubtful. <laughs> that we're going to maintain unity if that was the that was the case. Okay, here's another alternative that possibly he could do. Okay, guys, I'm going to go away, and I've got a ton of specific things that I want you to know and to do while I'm away. And I've left you a 1,200-page instruction manual, and it's size 8 fonts, it's got double columns, and it can be broken down into dozens and dozens of books written by different individuals from different time periods who speak different languages and they're operating on a different historical context, none of which you know anything about. It's completely mysterious to you. But I've got a lot that I want to say to you, and it's all in there. And each one of you has got to know this uh, manual, this instruction manual, inside and out. So here you go. Every one of you gets an instruction manual, and I'm out of here, and you guys just, you know, good luck. Okay? Is that going to be very smart for the, for the king to do? No. So what the king would do is he would leave behind a lieutenant or a representative, kind of a prime minister. And we're hearing about this guy, Eliakim, in this specific case, with this particular descendant or son of David. He has, as a prime minister, Eliakim. And what does he do? He gives Eliakim full plenary authority, full power, because that's the only way his kingdom is going to be maintained in his absence. And so he gives him the keys of the house of David, lays it upon Eliakim's shoulders. Whatever he unlocks is unlocked. Whatever he locks is locked. So he's got full authority. Okay? This is a beautiful foreshadowing of the New Testament fulfillment of the old. When that definitive son of David would come and would establish his kingdom on the earth, the church, and he would build that church upon the foundation of the twelve apostles. And he would deposit in that church the fullness of his teaching. And he would give unto her all seven of the holy sacraments. And then he is, there's a real uh, way in which we can say he left. He departs from that kingdom. He goes, of course, to the kingdom of heaven and he's still in charge. But in a real way, he's absent from his kingdom on earth. And so what do you think our Lord Jesus Christ would have done? What would have been the most intelligent and loving thing for him to do? Okay, say to each one of us, you know, each one of you people, 1.2 billion Catholics, why don't each one of you just do whatever seems good to you or feels right? Just go for it. Okay? What's, what's going to happen at that point? We can only imagine the kind of chaos and division, all right, and lack of unity that would ensue. Or conversely, what do you think he would do? Would he possibly say, hey, I've got this 1,200-page instruction manual, eight-size font, double-columned, written, you know, broken down into dozens of different books by different authors from different time periods, speaking different languages and different historical contexts that you know nothing about, have at it, right? So very likely he's not going to do that because, again, the same sort of chaos and division 
will ensue. So instead what he does is he leaves behind his prime minister, his, as it were, deputy or lieutenant, and that is Peter. Now, the important thing to understand here is that this uh, deputy has to be in operation for the entire length of the king's absence. So it's not that, you know, St. Peter himself dies and suddenly we revert to, you know, the Wild West man, uh, method of management or the, the 1,200-page instruction manual method of management. That wouldn't be the case. So in St. Peter, what Jesus is doing is he's actually establishing a position that's integral to the structure of the church itself. He's establishing an office that will always have someone occupying it. So Jesus, as the, the all-supremely intelligent and loving king that he is, he'll always have a living teacher on this earth to be his deputy and his representative. My brothers and sisters, the temptation of these two sort of alternative methods of running the show are perennial temptations, temptations for all human beings and temptations for Catholics as well. You know, on, on the one hand, we've got, the first time I've ever heard this was when I was a little kid from my mother, she used the phrase cafeteria Catholicism, and I, it took me a few years to understand what she even meant by that. But it's a, it's a very vivid metaphor, and probably many of us have heard about that. And it's kind of like this idea that Catholicism is like a, a cafeteria line, you know, and the Pope is like the lunch lady. And the Pope's job is to kind of prepare a number of options for us, and you can pick and choose whatever you like according to your tastes, and you can leave behind whatever it is that you don't, you don't, doesn't strike you as your fancy, okay? It's really not the case, okay? That's the kind of Wild West form of management that would be highly irresponsible for the Pope, uh, for, I'm sorry, for Jesus to have left behind. So he didn't do this. Cafeteria Catholicism is not the mind of Jesus, okay? So he established the papacy to preserve the faith in its integrity, in its entirety. It's a, uh, you know, the Pope is not really a lunch lady. He's more like your mother who always made you clean your entire plate, never made you, you know, gave you a choice about what you could or could not eat, okay? So that's, that's that one error is the cafeteria Catholicism. You know, I, I like this teaching, but I don't like that teaching. I'm going to take this and I'm going to leave that. Now, on the other hand, okay, this instruction manual uh, method of management that also is a temptation for Catholics, but maybe not in the way that you might think. Okay, I don't want to pick on, you could probably have inferred, I'm alluding to uh, the way that our, our Protestant brothers and sisters think of uh, church governance as they have this Bible alone understanding. You might think I'm going to pick on our Protestant brothers and sisters. I'm not going to. Because, you know, many, many of our, our Protestant brothers and sisters, they're very sincere. And they, with great zeal and sincerity, uh, read through the Bible, trying the best that they possibly can to discern God's will in it. And they make many errors, okay, but their heart is in the right place and they do hit upon many truths that really are taught to us by God, okay? And so it's erroneous, but their heart is in the right place and I don't want to focus on them. Rather, I want to focus about, I focus on how this error manifests itself amongst us Catholics. We have right now a, a kind of movement within the church that would be referred to as traditionalism. 
And the error here is usually these people have a very they have a very hard time with Pope Francis. They don't like the actual living representative of Jesus Christ on the earth. And so what they do is they prefer to go back to popes previous to him. Statements of authoritative statements of the church that that you know were established before Pope Francis. And what they're doing is kind of that Protestant error, the instruction manual book error. They're going back to a written form of authority as opposed to that living deputy, that living representative of Jesus on the earth. And they're saying, I prefer this and not this actual guy, like the actual real Pope. And extreme forms of this are called sedevacantism. When what that means is we believe that the the see of Peter, that the seat of Peter, that the authority office of Peter is vacant, that the current pope is not the real pope. The real pope died 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 500 years ago, whatever it is. They have these different theories of theirs. And it's that instruction book manual error that they fall into. Okay, A written text becomes their authority instead of that living representative of Jesus Christ on the earth. My brothers and sisters, unity is so important to the heart of God. So, so, so important to us as Catholics. We have a great vocation to be that sign and sacrament of the unity uh, of the human race in the world. And we thank God that he's given us that papal office to help cultivate and to ensure and to guarantee that that unity is a reality so that we can live up to our vocation. The final thing I'll leave you with is this. At pretty much on a weekly basis, I have someone ex- express to me a very serious problem that they have with some piece of Catholic, you know, some piece of the church's teaching on whatever topic it is. It's usually a moral topic, okay? 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago, people usually did the cafeteria Catholic thing when it came to mysteries of the faith. But nowadays, they like to do the cafeteria Catholic thing when it comes to the moral teachings of the church. And so on a weekly basis, I'll, I'll encounter this. My, my brothers, my fellow brother Catholics, uh, sister Catholics have problems with the teaching of the church. And uh, I'm here to say, please don't leave the church. And again, that happens. It happens quite frequently. Please don't leave. Come to me and talk. And I'm, I'm not going to condemn you. And I don't know. I'm not a genius. I'm not a theologian. But maybe together we can talk and Seek some kind of understanding so that you can find peace in your heart and in your conscience. Conversely, on the other side, this is a this is a real thing that's going on. I'd say the past five years, it's really been ramping up. It's a lot of people have a serious problem with our current Holy Father, Pope Francis. And if you fall into that camp and there's things that you're confused about, please, again, come to me. And again, like I said, I'm not an expert, I'm not a theologian. But I, I believe that God has given me the care of the souls of the people in these parishes. And uh, I think that he can help you possibly through me if we come, both of us, with humility and uh, willingness of mind and heart and openness to talk. And with prayer, hopefully we can find some help and some way forward. Because at root of it all, unity is so important. Not division, not confusion, but that our minds would be united so that we would have a single purpose and thereby give glory to God in the world as that sign of a unified humanity.